This presentation is from Design Research 2021, Day 3. Our next uh, presentation is going to look at how to sort of reach and gain the trust of um, audiences that aren't necessarily uh, as open to um, letting people in as we, as we might like. Kat and Roland, hello, welcome. Good morning. Morning. Lovely to have you both. Video on. Okay. I hope everyone's still staying dry wherever they are on the east coast of Australia today. Um, let me just start by telling you a bit of a story about my first user research visit out to a uh, mine in the Hunter Valley. I had no prior knowledge of the mining industry and I uh, had, you know, gone out and created printed surveys and organised interview scripts and all that kind of usual stuff. Had an early 5 a.m. start and a three-hour drive out to the site and I turned up in my crisp high-vis safety gear and shiny new steel cap boots ready for my big day research. So I jumped into a truck with one of the operators and headed down to the pit and I got as far as the first question and the operator, so let's just call him uh, John, um, he said to me, why should I hope help you uh, IT folk out? You're here to take our jobs. So from my very first user experience in the uh, mining industry, I knew engaging with our users was going to be really challenging. So let me uh, tell you a bit more about myself. I come from a traditional graphic design background and throughout my education and into my career, I always had an interest in digital media. So I started out in print publishing advertising, which quickly moved into web design and social media. Uh, I've got tertiary education completing both visual communication uh, and intimate communication degrees. Yeah, okay, thanks Kat. Um, my name's Roland. I, my background's more in industrial design and I spent uh, the most part of my working life uh, designing sports apparel and equipment. Uh, in the early 2000s, I was employed by the French ski brand Salomon, who are now well known for their trail running shoes. Um, the brand had a very customer-centric approach and never released a product into the market without having done extensive market research and user validation. We would generally present both working and non-working prototypes, non-working prototypes consisting of sketches, illustrations, or even DIY-style mock-ups made to look like the real thing. And in some cases, we would even be exploring new markets, meaning we would need to travel to where these countercultures counter had emerged. So when I worked on an urban adaptation of the rollerblade, for example, this would be in New York, Chicago, or, or Paris even. <clears throat> we also worked very closely with um, athletes to create pro models, which sometimes involved integrating styling that represented their personality or universe, um, like the board shot seen here uh, that was designed for um, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton and, and then when we worked with other athletes like adventure racers and endurance athletes the focus would be more on performance and trying to evolve the product so that it would give them an advantage or an edge over other competitors or in some cases it might help to, to save lives um, like in the case of the, uh, the inflatable avalanche backpack so with most of the technical brands based in, in Europe and the US, I transferred my skills into the digital space after moving back to Australia with my family in 2016. 
And this is us in um, an environment that was both very new to us when we started, obviously. Um, and that's, yeah, us with a couple of, well, a bunch of users um, that we collaborated with in, in Brazil uh, on a trip that Katrina will talk to a little bit later on. Um, so I've been focused mainly on web apps and analytics and Katrina's been very focused on, on field apps. So just to give you a little bit more context on Orica, um, which is what most of this presentation is built around, um, for the people that don't know Orica, it's um, the world's largest provider of commercial explosives and innovative blasting systems, selling mostly to the mining and construction markets. It's listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, has a workforce of around 12,000 people and services more than 100 countries. Now, one of Orica's visions is to transform how drill and blast is used to unlock mining value, utilising digital and automation technologies to create safer and more productive blast outcomes for customers. Blast IQ, the brand we work for, consists of a suite of software that analyses ground and resources, enables engineers to design blast patterns, allows field staff and truck drivers to adjust the designs and enter updated data, and dashboard software that analyzes the performance of the mine, highlights areas of improvement and identifies potential issues and safety risks. Now, the mission of BlastIQ is to empower drill and blast teams with tools and data that enables them to perform to their full potential. Okay, just remember earlier how I talked about John, the truck operator, that I met my first uh, user research experience. Let's all just take a moment to think about what John's persona would look like. What demographics would you need to consider when approaching him to conduct any further user research? And how would you approach finding solutions to solve his problems? So from the very early experiences that we had with our users like John, we first learned that there was a bit of a resistance to the way that they worked. Uh, they had a fear of technology and they found that automation was a threat and that they were being watched by Big Brother. So all these... Um, elements were things that, you know, were things for reasons that for them not to, uh, to, to engage with us. As designers, we needed to understand what the root cause of these feelings and reactions were. And we discovered that in most cases, there were not many opportunities where the miners lived because of the locations of the mines themselves. They often didn't know anything else than mining. They'd started young and they'd always worked in that industry. There was fear of the industry dying. So if you took the example of a coal mine, for example, you know, there's already end dates that are planned for coal mines because we're phasing into other ways of creating energy. Um, they might have a limited education because they haven't had access to education or they've just been focused on their career in mining. They have very few transferable skills as a result and they're not necessarily up to date with the latest technologies. So all of this means that they have a genuine and understandable fear of losing their jobs. So how do we gain their trust, the trust of our users and reassure them that we're there to help? Well, first of all, we can spend time in their world, put ourselves in their shoes, try and understand their issues and their pains um, and their needs. 
reassure them we're not, not there to test or judge them. So we had scenarios where where this um where the employees felt like they were being watched. If we were asking them questions, they felt like we were judging their performance or their knowledge. We needed to reassure them that we were just there to help improve the products and make their lives easier. Um, and that by working with us, by being cooperative and giving us good feedback, they would eventually have more value to the company because they were they were participating in improving our offer. And this essentially could, could create opportunities for them. So we had uh, a guy in our team um, that had um, that had transitioned from an underground miner to an explosives delivery truck driver and onto a technical support engineer where he now codes and solves software-related issues for our customers. So he no longer needs to live in the middle of nowhere. He has a more secure job and he works in an office and earns a better salary for his family. Now, this person's a real asset to the company because he's experienced firsthand the effects of bad interface design and poor user experiences. He also understands the downstream effect that this can have on different workflows and roles. So mining's an industry where domain knowledge is really important, and in many cases, this can be favoured over the right degree or experience in a particular job role. So most of the product managers at Orica do not necessarily have product manager degrees or diplomas, but they do understand the industry and the processes very well because they've worked in other roles within the industry. They're subject matter experts and they know how to talk to our users. The company acknowledges the fact that they can always be upskilled in other areas, but that fundamental knowledge of what mining is and how it works is the most important thing. So this creates, you know, the opportunity for people to work their way up um, and find themselves in more senior roles uh, just through the experience and having that motivation and desire to, to be part of a team and think of the bigger picture. So let's consider where in the world all our users are located. So Orica services over 100 companies. We've got four different regions that we're being split over uh, across the, the world. Most of these places are in within remote locations um, and there's variable climates and living conditions that need to be considered. So in this screen, you can see here we've got, you know, the snowy fields out in uh, Canada and up in the mountains up in Russia. So you've got the cold environments in, in, uh, to consider. Here we've got the humidity in Brazil. We've got the dust and everything out in Western Australia. Down the side here on this slide, there's just some um, varying uh, living conditions that all our users come from. The top picture at the top is a picture of a town right next to a gold mine in Brazil. The next couple of pictures are just living conditions of those that live in uh, Colombia. Um, the next one is some living conditions of um, on-site employees out in Western Australia. So these would be the accommodation quarters. And down the bottom, you can just see uh, just the, the imagery and the conditions of being on-site um, with the dust. Uh, there's no trees. You're out in the heat if you're out in Western Australia or you're just in the elements altogether. So just imagine this, uh, you've arrived in Colombia after 30 plus hours of flying and you're greeted by this really friendly taxi driver who doesn't speak much English. So the drive from the airport takes about another hour and a half in a tiny little hatchback along roads of potholes of the size of small kids, darting to avoid these into oncoming traffic. 
The roadsides are lined with uh, the locals trying to sell their produce and petrols in plastic containers. And finally, you arrive at your destination. Here, you get to go through um, extensive security checks where they check your passports, they take your electronic devices, you're filling out declarations and you're sent for a metal detector before you're, it, before you're handed all your things back. And all of this is ordered to you in Spanish while you're surrounded by a bunch of burly Colombian men. And as a female, it can be quite daunting. This was when I realised that we were never going to be able to experience any of this while we were sitting in an air-conditioned office in Newcastle. So before COVID hit uh, last year, Roland and I had the opportunity to travel overseas to South America. So you can see here on the screen, this was our flight itinerary just to get over there and back. So to get there, it took us over 30 hours just to get to um, Colombia. So not just even traveling overseas has been a barrier to access our users. Generally, there are challenges entering mine sites, as I just mentioned, where anywhere around the world, even locally here in the Hunter Valley. So this includes things like access in the mine, which is like the security, onboarding and travel time inside the site. Some of these sites are quite large. So to get from the office down to a pit can take anything from one to two hours, depending on how big the site is. Uh, there's always uh, rescheduling as um, a concern and a challenge as, you know, as much as possible, we flew all the way over here to Colombia, but um, there's other um, priorities within mine sites. So there's things from uh, costs and emergencies and they've got changing priorities. Another reason why we can't particularly get them to come to us is because it's going to cost them money to take their uh, employees out of production. So they're going to lose time actually getting product out of the ground to make money. So it is quite, it's much easier for us to go to them. And being present with them, it just shows that we're committed to actually hearing their feedback rather than just sending out a blanket email or trying to contact them digitally. Um, it just doesn't work because especially if we're dealing with the users that are on the field, they're just not going to be using emails. They don't, they're not allowed their mobile devices or anything on, on, in the pit. So that kind of digital access is just really hard to get. There's a lot of demographical differences um, amongst our users as well. We all know that uh, the mining industry is heavily dominated by the male gender. You know, there is push a lot in Australia for a more 50-50 equality of female employees. But the fact of the matter is we've got a more uh, male dominated user group. Other things we need to consider are the languages, not just the, uh, the Spanish, English, all that kind of stuff. Not the, it's also the locality and uh, industry lingo. So the domain um, language that is used, that varies from um, region to region as well. Is we also need to consider the, the cultures. So what's the organisational culture? What are their worth ethics? What is the religion within that region? So we need to consider all these things when we're approaching our users as well. The environment, which I'll discuss in a bit more detail shortly, is a very big area and importance to how we come up with our solutions for our users. So things can vary from heat, dust and snow and rain, humidity, and even to whether it's day or night time. And the workflow also can change between regions as well. In some places, the labour workforce is much cheaper um, to obtain than in other areas. So they may have more labor 
um, people more ha hands on deck doing the manual work, whereas, you know, some other areas, they are more focused on automation because they see that automation will, is cheaper for them to run their business. Also, between different regions, there's different type of products. Some of them use the Oracle May products. Some of them, you know, create their own products. So we've got to consider how those kind of things can interact with our solutions. And also there's blast design. So um, depending on what kind of mine site that we're at, whether it's a mineral, coal or underground, there's different ways to design um, a blast. And we need to consider and ensure that all scenarios are kind of uh, are covered when we come up with our solutions as well. So why do we go to all this effort? So first off, it's more about the observation. So we get to see how they're actually working in their environment. As I've mentioned, environment is quite a big area to consider. We need to ensure that, you know, we get exposed to the different environments. We may not know what the snow is like out in the middle of nowhere compared to, to the dusty outbacks in uh, Western Australia. So these two types of users um, would have completely... Uh, different kind of work environments to deal with and it's quite hard to get that through to us in a digital format. We get to experience as well how the thing, to experience how um, they do things, we get to see it and sometimes we get to be able to do it as well. Uh, we get the opportunity by being there and to meet um, other users that we may not have thought of. So the example of this was when we were over in Columbia, we got to meet the mine manager by chance just because we were there at the time and he was free and we were able to get in and have a good discussion with him. And also we do get to learn by doing. So by jumping in a truck and driving along, we get to walk the pits with the users as they're setting up times for blasts. And in some cases, like I mentioned, we get to perform the tasks um, when I was over in Brazil, when we went over there early last year, I got to even fire my own blast. So I definitely would have been able to do that if I was sitting in my office. So what are the, some of the, the things that we, that we learned from this experience and why is it so important? Um, one of the first things that, that I discovered pretty quickly was that we should never assume what is important for our customer. So we kind of had this... Um, always assumed, I guess, um, more importantly, that operational excellence and profitability was the key driver for, for these big mine sites. But having spent time over there and speaking to more senior um, staff members, we realised that often social and environmental responsibilities was the most important thing for them um, and, and what they were, were assessed on. Um, now, there's a number of reasons for this, and it kind of makes sense when you break it down, but that has a knock-on effect to... to a lot of things, uh, one of those being the reputation they have in the public eye. So obviously bad press is never good for the mine. It can slow down uh, productivity. Um, and obviously in a lot of cases, it's against the ethics of the company. It's not something that they want to be um, doing. If the, if the media gets hold of, you know, an incident or whatever, that's obviously not, not a good image, but it's not, it's not good for them either because they have their own standards. Um, it means an improved relationship with the community. So you can see uh, Luis here is one of the members of the Brazilian team. He's pointing at his mine site, the mine site that he works on. But you'll notice just underneath is a town. Um, so the mine goes, buffers right up to the edge of, of the, the local community. So anything that they do, um, especially if it's not done right, has a huge impact on the community and is felt. Um, 
They also have government and military regulations that they need to meet, and if they don't meet them, that can result in significant fines and it can even mean the loss of their licence to practice. Um, but overall, all of this means that if, the, if they adhere to social environmental um, responsibilities, it means that the, the life the mine life is, is going to be extended. The, the mine's going to exist for a longer period of time, which means they stay in business longer, they keep people employed for longer, they help the local and national economy, um, especially in the case of the, the mine we visited in Colombia. It's probably one of the biggest um, money generators for the, for the country. Um, and that obviously means happy stakeholders and more long-term sustainable um, profit. Um, so what, what are the opportunities out of, out of knowing this? It, it, there's a number of things. It means that we can focus on, um, on improving vibration management software, for example. So vibration is, is what we feel in the ground um, and there's other effects of mining, but this is a big one. Uh, so we had in place a vibration management software that we're using, but on a very small scale. We had a couple of customers. It was just sort of ticking along. It wasn't really... Um, gaining any momentum or generating much income for the company. But now that we discovered that this, you know, was the key driver for a lot of our, our big minds and big customers, um, we were able to put that on the roadmap and, and really strive to improve it. And the uptake has been incredible because obviously there's a huge need for it. It's a way of them of monitoring how well they're um, adhering to their social environmental um, responsibilities. Um, so basically, a vibration management software allows customers to design a blast, create a simulation, and predict the amount of vibration at key structures such as power poles, roads, and buildings. Um, and by doing this, they can confidently create an effective blast without risking damage. Um, and a result of that damage we can see at the bottom right-hand uh, corner, uh, which is uh, an effect called uh, fly rock. Uh, which is associated with a process called stemming. So if you can imagine a champagne bottle um, and you've got your cork in the top, you shake that champagne bottle, uh, it's going to create a certain amount of energy. Now, if you're at a party, you know, obviously the objective is for that cork to pop and the energy to go out the top and the champagne to fly everywhere. Um, that's not the desired effect in a mine. <laughs> so you imagine the liquid inside or the champagne itself, that is explosives um, and you've got this cork at the top, you want that cork to hold fast and the energy to be dispersed horizontally, which is what essentially breaks the ground and gives you the results that you're after. Um, but what can happen if that's not done right, if it's not entered correctly or if it's not the right length, and that's often the sort of deciding factor, um, that energy will go out the top and all the, the rock and the gravel that's used to block the hole will fly up into the air and could potentially land on cars or houses or people or um, who knows what else. Um, so, you know, we, we thought, okay, well, it's, it's a big opportunity to report on, on, this, um, on this process of the, of the mining um, the loading uh, process. So, uh, like I said before, it's, it's essentially measured on, on length, the length of, of the stemming that goes at the top of the hole. Um, so through dashboards, we were able to report on that final stemming length against the design length. So how, how well were they actually adhering to the initial design? And we could use heat maps to locate areas where they were either within tolerance or out of tolerance so that management could trace that back to a particular team, time of day, or a piece of equipment. Not so much to blame 
the team or, or the piece of equipment or whatever, but it was more to locate, you know, where problems were happening, maybe a piece of equipment or a truck or whatever needed to be um, needed to be adjusted uh, or, you know, they didn't the, the teams didn't have access to the right information or it wasn't being updated or whatever it made to be, they were able to at least locate or identify the pattern and address it. So a good example of how um, assuming priorities for uh, a customer um, might not necessarily be what reality is. And then when you discover, you know, where the focus is, actually addressing that and, and offering solutions that, that help them achieve those goals. That's it for that one, Kat. Yeah, it's coming through. <laughs> All right, so there's some environmental factors, like I mentioned before, that um, especially for the field devices are very important for us to consider. So we've got things uh, like connectivity uh, issues here. Um, so you're out in the middle of the elements. Mobile um, coverage isn't the best out here, especially um, if you're next to um, a wall. Um, it varies day to day because the landscape is always changing on, on the pit. A lot of the sites have their own internet coverage within the site. Some of them use the local um, mobile network, which they had done so in this Brazilian site. So there were some issues wherever they were, may have been within uh, the pit, they may have had some connectivity issues. Some other things we needed to consider when we're designing our um our solutions is the vibrations on our loading truck. So up there in the top corner is an example of one of our mobile manufacturing units. Um, so as you can see, it's quite big. The terrain's not the best. Um, so we need to find ways to secure our digital devices in these so they're not bouncing around or become a safety issue. One of the major things that we really need to consider when we're designing our interfaces is the reflection and the dust that can appear on the screens. So down in that bottom corner there is an example of one of our on-field devices. As you can see, it's quite a reflective screen. So when we design any colours or anything um, in regards to the interface, we need to make sure that it's going to break through this glare and, and information is not going to be lost. They also use um, protective gloves. So as you can see, they've got um, gloves there. Um, so when they're protecting themselves from any damage that may come from their manual labour. Um, and so with this, we discovered a bit of an opportunity um, to accommodate the physique of the main gender demographic being male and the use of their protective gloves while in operation. And we needed larger than standard size buttons to use on the infield touch devices. So Apple's human interface guidelines recommends about a 44 pixel um, size, whereas the Android material design guidelines suggest about 48. So we opted to have about a 54 pixel size um, target area um, so that it made it a lot easier for our users to interact uh, with the device in the uh, mining environment. Yeah, another thing we, we quickly realised was that understanding the context of how a product will be used is really important. So I've been working on a, a BLAST progress dashboard, which allows users to track how well they're progressing towards meeting the BLAST deadline, which usually happens on a daily basis. Now, we knew this was really useful because we'd engaged with, with users remotely, but we'd never experienced the environment that it would be used in and observed how people interact with it. 
So at the start of the day, there'd be a planning meeting, obviously. And at that point, they could they could assess how well they were progressing. They could identify through the dashboard the tasks that were remaining to be able to reach that, um, that deadline. And this would all happen at the start of the day so that essentially if they weren't on track, they could reallocate resources, they could rethink their operations, um, and they could potentially catch up for lost time. Because basically, if they met, if they didn't meet that deadline, they'd be imposed with a fine. Um, so it had quite serious financial consequences. And then, you know, targets of the week or the month or whatever would all get um, disrupted as well. So being present allowed us to better understand the information they needed to make those key decisions surrounding planning and allocating resources. Basically, anything that would help them get back uh, on schedule. So we noticed that the audience consisted of, of mostly senior roles like supervisors and mine managers, which basically meant we were dealing with a more mature audience. And as Kat mentioned before, um, it was a very male-orientated um, um, audience. Now, this seemed to be more extreme um, in less developed countries. Um, the reason for that is unknown, but that was what we uh, experienced anyway. So as far as opportunities go, first of all, you know, we realised there was a use case for this dashboard in these meetings. So potentially it could be something that we projected or visualised on, on big monitors. So we adjusted um, the design of it so it would fit those monitors really well. We kind of stripped out most of the functionality because we kind of wanted as a, you know, a set, um, an observe type feature. We didn't want people interacting and going from one page to the next to have to find the information. They needed it all there in front of them so they can make those key decisions quickly um, with, uh, you know, with the information on hand so that there were the right decisions to make. Um, we started to consider things like font size because we, because we had that older audience and, um, and people were observing it from a distance, so you might be able to come up close, but if there was a lot of people in the room, there might be people at the back that were trying to um, pull the information from it or having trouble seeing it. So font size, we increased, uh, we increased the amount of contrast to make things more visible. And we considered um, to a, a great extent um, any sort of color, um, color uh, deficiencies. So we did a lot of simulations to make sure that we covered different types of color blindness because that's more present in the male population. Um, statistics say up to 10% of the male population suffers from color blindness. So that was something we really needed to consider in this use case. And this actually meant spending weeks um, coordinating meetings between the different product groups so that we could align on a color palette that worked across the entire suite. Um, obviously, this was one product um, associated with one team, but our color uh, colors represented uh, statuses of, of different holes, and these were used across the whole product range. So it was quite disruptive because in order to fit this scenario, and it was a very important one, where we used heat maps and we had multiple colors on the same screen, they all needed to be differentiated from the other one, otherwise they'd get confused from a different, a different step in the process. Um, and then we needed to apply them to the other product groups, which might have been using different um, different colours up until that point, so there was legacy issues. So it was a big piece of work, but it, it uh, had a lot of value and it's been really well received. Um, so that's just an example of how we've had to adapt our design to the use case more so than the initial request um, and the brief.
So one of our most favoured uh, research techniques is using uh, contextual studies. So if we didn't, don't go out and actually visit and see um, our users in action, there'll be a lot of things that we could possibly miss. So obviously we have the issue that we can't get them to record what they're doing due to safety concerns and a lot of other constraints within many mine sites. So by us going there, we get to experience the pain points of the users. So one example I'm going to draw upon is um, when we were in Colombia, we were down on the pit and we are having a really good conversation with one of the user groups while we were there. In the day they were speaking to us in Spanish, we had a translator with, a, with us as well so that we could um, have a really good com conversation right there and there and they could point out what the issues they were having um, in context with the device. So one of the things that they did bring to our attention was that they didn't have the capabilities to do drill plan notes. So the main um, pain point here was that take, they were taking their notes down on paper and then they'll be heading back to the office and then typing it in as an email to send it to the next crew to let them be aware of what happened uh, during the previous shift. So their request here was to be able to have this capability within the device so that they can just do it all in one place, do it on the spot, and then the next time the next person picks up the device, they'll, be had, they'll have the uh, debrief from the shift before. So this allowed me to come back home and um, show this uh, opportunity to our product owners. And at, currently at the moment, this is something that we're working on and to implement into our software. So we'll be updating the notes functionality and to allow multiple entries that are timestamp and especially against uh, the drill plans. So this is what can happen when you go out and you experience and have conversations um, with your users. Uh, you can find these pain points and bring them back to um, product owners and other stakeholders and show them what really matters to the users who are actually using this in the field. So some of the research methods that we practice um, based on the experiences we've had are contextual studies. Now, we've talked to, to that quite a lot already in the presentation, but basically getting out there, um, putting ourselves in the shoes of our users, understanding their environment, experiencing it firsthand, um, getting to know them, and, um, and then sort of integrating that into our whole design process. Another thing that we really like to use is record everything. So always take a phone if you're it, take photos, videos, notes, whichever way possible, dictate, whatever you can do. Because the more that you can record and look and look upon later, that is something that um, you might have missed something while you're out in the field. It's also great to bring that back to the team back in the office and let them actually see and try and experience as much as possible um, what our users' environments are like so that they understand what they're, they're developing for. Yeah, Katrina mentioned before the fact that uh, schedule is very disruptive um, on a mine site and, and often is changing. So often we'll, we'll have planned an interview, uh, we'll have locked in time, we'll have organised that everybody's accepted and we get there, an emergency happens or some sort of incident happens um, and the whole schedule for the day goes out the window. And 
the, the people working in the mine are very used to working in that environment. It took us a little while to get used to, but we've definitely had to adapt to it. So instead of using interview scripts now, we use um, what we call content-guided scripts. So basically we kind of cover um, categories of information that we need to gather um, and then we're less concerned about how we get it or when we get it. We just sort of tick it off as we go along. Um, so it's kind of a reference point um, that we can pull out, like, for example, in the car with, with the guys, they're off to uh, actually ignite the blast. Uh, it's an opportunity to chat. It might be something that we refer to our guide. Oh, we could cover this. Um, this is related to, to what we're doing right now. Um, and, and sort of seize those moments rather than um, allowing them to be, uh, sorry, um, allowing them to be missed opportunities. We also like to try and build lasting relationships with our user groups. So because some of them, they are quite hard to reach and in the first place. So when we do get a good relationship going, especially with these two guys here, we still speak to these um, Leo and Lewis quite often and refer back to them for um, some user feedback um, from actually being there and introducing ourselves to them and spending time with them, not just work-wise, but also uh, on a personal basis as well. It help, gives us a little user group, a, a user board, so to say, that we can go back to them whenever we have future issues that we can go and seek their advice um, down the track. The five whys, I imagine most of the people in the in the room would be familiar with the five whys, but this is something we've used more and more. Um, and if I took the example of interacting with the supervisors around the progress dashboard, um, we'd sort of kick off the conversation. This was a real example that we had of, uh, you know, why do you need a progress dashboard? And the answer would be, well, we need to know how well drilling and loading is progressing. We'd be like, oh, why? Why do you need to know that? Well, because it because I need to know if we're going to meet the deadline. Oh, why do you need to know that? So that so that we can reallocate resources. Oh, why is that? Not to make up for lost time. Okay, why do you need to know that you can you need to make up for lost time? So that I can regain control. And that was kind of once we got to that point, it was a little bit of a light bulb moment because um, the dashboards that we provide allow the supervisors to feel in control because he or she then has the information they need to make informed decisions. And we probed a little bit further on that one, and it, and it turned out that control is not only important to this user on a professional level, but also on a social and emotional level. So when they feel in control, they feel respected, they feel capable, and they feel valued. And they're empowered to do their job well because they've got the data that they need. So it was a little bit of sort of drilling down to get to that, that core um, problem the customer was or the user was having. And then our, our sort of challenge at that point was like, well, okay, what else can we do to help provide the information and the tools for that person to feel in control? So for the last uh, one, which is engage with all users, I'm going to take an example that's a little bit out of context. So it's nothing to do with the mining industry. This actually happened while I was traveling in Peru um, and I was invited to visit, visit an orphanage that was run by a family friend. Uh, I was really impacted, obviously, by the situation of the children, but maybe even more so by some of the drawings that I saw hanging on a wall. I was just blown away by the talent these kids had and how pure and impacting the, the drawings and the artworks that they'd done. Now, at that point, I'd always wanted to create my own clothing brand and was convinced that inspiring artwork from children in need and ethical clothing for balanced living would make a great combination. Uh, the idea was that a percentage of the sale of the products would finance the education of children that created the artworks and our customers would have eco-friendly clothing that would accompany them in their own quest for well-being. 
So I spoke with a bunch of friends and friends of friends, and they were all as excited about the concept as I was. So I got some drawings sent over from Peru, contacted some garment manufacturers I knew, and set out putting together our first collection. So over time, we listened more and more to our customers and the retailers that stocked the brand. Uh, we continued to improve our offer, and as a result, we, we grew bigger and we sold more products. But then I started to think, but, but what about our other users? So this whole um, brand had been driven on this idea about helping these children. Uh, and I knew that money was, was being sent to them, but I didn't know if this was actually helping them. Um, I hadn't spent any time with them since the first visit. And I started asking myself whether they were happy with the project. So I went over to Peru and spent two months with them and their carers. And while we were there, we ran a couple of creative workshops and got to experience firsthand the impact it had on the children. Now, we quickly discovered that what the children liked most about the project was being creative and not the funding or education that came from it. The carers and staff members at the centres told us that the confidence and feeling of worth that had increased significantly because, because they felt like their creativity had value and this was kind of the most important thing for them. Um, so from that point on, we started to change our whole strategy. We started really investing in the creative development of the children. We started doing murals in the homes and centres to brighten up their living space and give them something to be proud of. We started taking artists with us to teach them new skills and challenge them. We spent more time with them in general. And we shared these videos and photos of all this with our customers and they absolutely loved it because they could see that their, particip their participation had a really positive impact on the children and their well-being. So we realised that engaging with your users can take many forms and in some cases may not happen face-to-face. -face. We've been very lucky that we got to experience that, but we realise not everybody has that opportunity. We just wanted today to, to share with you some of our experiences and learnings dealing with the challenges of distance and resistance. We hope that this has highlighted just how important it is to really understand your users if you want your products to be successful, whether that's face-to-face -face or remotely. Thank you very much for listening. And I also just wanted to point out we are hiring, so if you're interested in joining our team, there's a quick link to our Seek ad, so you can jump on that and find out some more information. Thank you both so much. Kat, Rollins, Thank you. really, really wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you, Steve. There's a question from Karen. Uh, in any of your scenarios, was the aim of your work actually a potential threat to the participants' jobs? And how did you mitigate this? So was what you were doing potentially posing a threat to their job? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, no, we haven't experienced that. Uh, automation is something that the company is working towards, but it's sort of happening in the back burner to a certain extent. There's a lot of sort of side projects, investigations going on. We're starting to do it a little bit with, um, with BHP, but at the moment it's not taking the, none of the outcomes of that project are taking the jobs of, of any workers. Um, and, and we also realised, and I think we, we touched on that before, that, you know, moving towards digital solutions and automations can often just mean a shift in, in career direction. So it can also create a lot of opportunities. We're working with a lot more data scientists, a lot more researchers now. Um, and like I said, the company's very open to people with a really deep understanding of the mining industry to progress th through to other positions, um, work their way up the career ladder. Um, so look, I think 
in the long run, it could potentially take away um, certain positions, but it'll always create other opportunities and probably more opportunities than than, than exist uh, today. Fair enough. Kat, do you want to add to that? Oh, no, I think Roland's covered that uh, quite well. So, yeah, there's always opportunity to move within, especially within Orica. They're very keen on keeping their talent. Um, and there's always, they're always got their um, ladder, uh, their career ladder that they try and keep within um, the business. So any of their information, any kind of experience they have within the company, they want to keep it with, with them. And, you know, they've put a lot of um, time and effort into training up their personnel. So Fair enough. Wonderful. Well, look, thank you both. No worries. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, everyone, for listening.